Well, thank you. Well, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1 this evening. Uh, we remind ourselves that John's writing towards the very end of his life, he's writing well towards the end of that first century in which our Lord has lived and died and risen again. The church, the churches are growing. Most of the churches have got ex-Jews as members. The, the, the major component of the church towards the end of the first century are converted Jews, although with an increasing number of Gentiles joining them. In fact, for the next hundred years, the majority of Christians in the Mediterranean basin will be converted Jews. Uh, Jews all over the world, as they were scattered by the dispersion, meeting in their synagogues, are confronted with the Christian claim and move from synagogue to church. Yes, even as early as the end of the first century, we know of the existence of actual buildings. They didn't look, didn't look like this church, but actual buildings devoted to the worship of Christ. And with the growth of the church and with the establishment of congregations, of course, you discover these churches have some similarities to our own. People in the church decide to take their own interpretation of Scripture, gather around them people that agree with them, and either stay in the church to kind of be a thorn in the side of the church, an irritant uh, in the church, or, as is the case in the congregation that uh, John has in mind, leave the church. Just leave. Go somewhere else and do what they do somewhere else. And John is writing to these people and he's writing to them to do a couple of things. He's writing to them to reestablish the relationship he has with them as an apostle of Christ. He's writing to them to bring them back to the core things of the faith, the things that are non-negotiable, the things that you can't play around with or, and, uh, and change. Any attempt to change them either takes you in the air, in, into the area of heresy and perhaps even ultimately apostasy, and even those minor issues that one introduces into the life of the church but makes major, whereas they're not made major by the, the Scripture or by Jesus or by the apostles. They're made, made into major things, those major things that are divisive of church fellowship. John has those things in mind as he writes. And so at the beginning, the very beginning of, the gospel, of, of this letter, he reminds us of the gospel, the, the good news that they'd heard, the good news they'd believed, therefore the good news that had created them into the body of Christ that they were, the church that they were. And so the opening sentence of this letter provides us with a comprehensive, if condensed, summary of the gospel. It takes us to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the incarnation of Christ. The fact that God is in the flesh. God is with us. 
It's the, the, the manifestation of the eternal divine life. That's how John puts it. He's referring to Jesus. When he talks about that, he's not talking about something ob- objective or, or material or extra to Jesus. Jesus is the eternal divine life made known by his arrival, uh, made known in a human way by his taking on our human nature, by his incarnation, the life that he lived a, a normal human life, uh, yes, demonstrating that he had powers that he had from his divine nature, but typically speaking, living a human life like us. And of course, then his resurrection. John has in mind the resurrection of Jesus. That is in the forefront of his mind. He wants us to know that he was one of those who saw Jesus alive after his passion. And uh, That's what he's referring to when he says, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and touched with our hands. The word of life, the life was made manifest. When he thinks about Jesus, he thinks about the resurrection, those Sunday evenings when they were in the upper room and Jesus appeared to them. And he's overwhelmed by that, as the early Christians were. He appears to them as life. He's alive. He is life itself, resurrection life, the life that we too one day shall enjoy for ourselves. And so this Jesus has conquered death, made himself known to his disciples, has appointed apostles like John to be the witnesses of that event, to be the witnesses to the reality. The gospel is not some airy-fairy, ephemeral puff of smoke. Rather, it is solid flesh and bone, the resurrected Christ. So the heart of the gospel is that. The soul of the gospel is the shared experience of the historical Jesus through the ongoing church. As you and I, at 2,000 years plus removed from those events, gather together here this evening, we listen to this apostolic witness. We are party to that great tradition of truth that was revealed to them and then handed on by word of mouth to uh, the church that we don't have in writing but was carried on uh, as a sacred deposit to succeeding generations those insights that that help us interpret the inerrant and infallible Scriptures that we have in our hands. These truths that have been revealed, supernaturally revealed, this sacred doctrine that has been given to us with its dogmatic statements about what is true and what is false, these truths are authenticated anew in every generation And every generation of believers needs to discover them and and recover them if necessary and, and then pass them on because we're only ever a generation away from losing the gospel altogether. You think of churches that were once great churches. I think of churches in Scotland whose ministers were my heroes of the faith, whose sermons I read as a boy, whose life stories I followed. And those churches are now apostate. If they're still churches, 
I think of a beautiful church in which one of the greatest preachers of Scotland preached for many, for 50 years, I think. They stayed long in those days. They were in their 90s before they ended. Be afraid, be very afraid. And, and now they're nightclubs, nightclubs. The soul of the gospel then is that shared experience of the historical Jesus through the ongoing church as we receive this apostolic witness and the great tradition of truth revealed to them, handed down to us, and we prove their authenticity from generation to generation because we come to believe. We, we come to be the ones who declare with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. Whenever you do that, you're right there with those apostles in the upper room that first Sunday. You're right there with the early church and with subsequent generations of believers right up to this moment of time. So the heart of the gospel, the soul of the gospel, the shared experience of the historical Jesus, the fruit of the gospel is found in the fellowship of those who share the same divine life by grace through Christ and the joy that it brings. That's where we're going this evening. The fellowship. Now you see, John introduces fellowship very early on in this book because fellowship was at risk in the church to which he's writing and perhaps to the wider churches that are going to read this letter. Uh, The fruit of the gospel is found in the fellowship of those who share the same divine life by grace through Christ and the joy that it brings. But that fellowship was under threat by people in the church. Some of them were still there. Some of them had left the church. We call them the secessionists. They had seceded from the church. They had defected. They were in the church, and they defected. They left the church. Defection and schism are equally responsible for breaking the communion of the church. Now, this happened back then. We often say that it happens in America more than in any other century of Christian history. Uh, Today, people just think they can go to a church, and then if there's something they don't like, they can just move on to another church. Like you, you don't like what's being sold in Acme, so you go to Whole Foods, or you don't like what's in Whole Foods, so you go to Wegmans. And churches are just like that. You know, you go in, you, you kind of sample the dish, and if you don't like that or this, or something gets up your nose, well, what do you do? You abandon the church. You abandon a church of Jesus Christ. It's shocking. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing that people can do it, but they do it regularly. And it all started. It all started with these people that John is writing to defection and schism break the communion of the church. Now, John has spoken spoken up very plainly for the gospel as it's been received and proclaimed by the apostles. It is the apostolic testimony that provides the church with the permanent content, if you like, with the fact material of Christian belief. It's the apostles that provide that fact material, that permanent content of Christian belief. They knew the Son of God 
in his incarnate human life. Their message about him is fixed and firm. What the apostles say is the touchstone of truth. It is the church's safeguard against all the freaks of human fancy and the vagaries of speculation. The apostolic gospel has a supreme and sovereign place in the church. It has a permanent function in the church. Because as Jesus taught us in that high priestly prayer in John 17, as we're overhearing what Jesus is saying to the Father, he's saying as his, after he's prayed for the apostles and consecrated them to be priests like him, in the temple that is the church. He then says, prays for those who will believe in me, Jesus says, through their word. There isn't a Christian in this room that hasn't become a Christian, except you've believed in the testimony that the apostles give to us. Hence, the church is an apostolic church. Theirs is the teaching and the testimony of the Spirit. In the upper room in John 16, Jesus is talking to them, not to us. Very often people comment in some of the bits of John 14 to 17 as if it was applying to to you and to me. It's not. Jesus is very clear who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the men in that room. He tells, he's speaking to these men who have been with him for a long time. He tells them that he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will remind them of things that he's said and done. He said to them, I'm going to leave you. Really, I'm going to leave you. But I will send the Holy Spirit. He will be your comforter. He will be with you. And he will lead you into all truth. So don't go to that verse and say, you know, Jesus is going to lead me into all truth. I'll find out things that the pastor doesn't know and the elders don't know and the Pope doesn't know and nobody knows. No, it is the apostles, those ones who are there. He will guide you into all truth and he will show you things to come. Jesus puts it like this, you'll take what is mine and declare it. John 16, 13, and 14. So their calling was to do two things. Verse 2, it was to bear witness and then to declare to the church the goodness of the good news. And both of those words in their context imply authority. They imply authority. If you look at the word witness, what does it mean to bear witness? If you're called to testify in court and you have been there, seen it, done it, observed what, what has gone on, as you're in the witness stand, you are the authority. You have the authority of experience. You're able to tell the court what you've seen. What you've seen. And so the, the, the apostles have the authority of experience. They were the ear and eyewitnesses of, to the life and teaching, death and resurrection, as the ascension of our Lord Jesus. One has to be a witness 
if one is going to be competent to bear witness. And so they'd witnessed these things, and they bore witness to these things. That's what the Gospels are. They'd also to declare it. They're to declare it, and that points not just to the authority of experience, but the authority of commission. They have a unique commission. Their words become Holy Scripture. The teaching of every other teacher in the church, from the highest to the lowest, from the best to the worst, get their teaching from Scripture. They get to get their teaching in Scripture. You know, they performed signs and wonders just like Jesus did. People took note of them that they'd been with Jesus because they did the same works that Jesus did. And so, John has laid out his credentials before us. He'd seen, heard, touched the Lord Jesus. And having, seen, having that testimony and having those credentials, he is very bold in declaring the gospel with authority. As John Stock once put it, the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but a dogmatic affirmation by those whose experience and commission qualified them to make it. That is the apostles. So much then for the fact material that, that constitutes the gospel. But what is the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel? Well, first of all, this falls into two parts. And these are the really only two points that I have this evening. The first is that you may have fellowship with us, John says. Now, when John says here, we or us, he's referring to the apostles, the people who were there and who heard and saw and handled the incarnate Lord. He's referring to the apostles. The early church fathers, people argue, historians argue, when they come to an end, sometimes the 4th century, 6th century, ninth century. And uh, I, one of the attractive uh, responses to the answer of when does that period end, to me, and if which is shared by a number of uh, historians of the early church, is that it probably ended with the venerable Bede. And he writes this, John shows quite clearly that those who want to have fellowship with God must first of all be joined to the church. And there in the church or with the church, learn that faith and be blessed with its sacraments, which the disciples truly received during the time of Christ's incarnation. Nor do those who believe the apostles' testimony, that's us, belong any less to the Lord than those who believed him when they heard him preaching in the flesh. Isn't that a lovely thought? John, who was there, had heard Jesus straight from the horse's mouth, if we might say, doesn't have a closer relationship with Jesus than you and I can have. Now, everything we know, this is why they're so important. 
Everything we know about the human life of Jesus, we owe to these men. We've seen that they saw and heard. They have not seen or heard. We have not seen or heard. And yet they nonetheless are our brothers. We hold a common faith with them. The four Gospels are given to us to give us a kind of all-round account of who Jesus is. There's four of them so that we can come at Him from different angles and see different aspects of the fullness of life that Jesus was in His human incarnation. And so when we recite the creed, we are taking a stand with the apostles and with the whole church, the whole church of the East and the West, the Latin church and the Greek church, Church of the Reformation and other churches that affirm the same creed with us. We hold a common faith. And around the world and throughout time, we stand with the church of Jesus Christ that was and will be. And Jesus was thinking of you and me when he said, Blessed are they who do not see and yet have believed. There's this phrase in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is talking to the apostles themselves. He says this, Blessed be the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Their, their position is unique. St. Augustine gets this point. He says this, The disciples saw the Lord in the flesh, and they heard his words, which they made known to us. We have also heard, but we have not seen. Are we less happy than they who saw and heard? No. For John goes on to say that the reason for his preaching is that we might share in their fellowship. John wants us to have, you see, what the apostles have. He doesn't say, notice, so that you might know what we know, but that you might have what we have, fellowship with the apostles. John here is revealing then the heart of of apostolic Christianity. John Calvin has a comment here. He testifies that John testifies of the feeling of their heart, for he says that he was moved by no other reason to write except to invite those to whom he was writing to the participation of an inestimable good. It hence appears how much care he had for their salvation How ungrateful we must be if we refuse to hear him who wishes to communicate to us a part of that happiness which he has obtained. John wants us to be happy. He wants us to share the joy that he has in the gospel, in Christ. He wants us to be part of that, to be in fellowship with the apostles. And there's something else, the second part. To be in fellowship with the apostles, that is to be part of the apostolic church, 
to believe the faith of the apostles, be able to say that and confess it and articulate it, is to be in fellowship with God himself. Look how he puts it. That you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Hilary of Arles put it like this. Our fellowship is in the unity of our faith here on earth and in the eternal dwelling place of God in heaven. How do I get into that fellowship? Well, you get into that fellowship by faith. You get into that fellowship by receiving the word of the gospel and by having received it, resting in it. Taking it for for yourself. Owning it as your own. Confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead. That's the door to this fellowship with the apostles. What we believe about, you see, what we believe about Christ is of vital importance to our life of faith. For our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, and that fellowship depends on us believing. Now, when we speak about the value of friendship and fellowship with other people, perhaps a group of friends that you have, a small group you belong to, sometimes use the language as kind of current, or it was last month. Uh, Things change quickly. Uh, we, We sometimes talk about doing life together. We do life together. Here John is speaking about doing life together with God. To be honest, here there there is a singular object in in the sentence here. Even though it refers to father and son, the grammar refers to a single object. Father, son, and spirit equal the one God. What does it mean to know the father and the son? Such knowing is identical with life. Life is manifested in fellowship, fellowship with the church, and through the church, fellowship with God. Fellowship involves entering into friendship, sharing in something with others, participating in something, partaking of something. The fellowship with the apostles is fellowship with the Father And the Son, to share in fellowship with God, is to share His life. How has He just described Jesus? He is the eternal life. What do we get when we believe in Jesus? We get eternal life. That's the gift of Christ to us. And this eternal life is none other than the divine life. It's the life that is and which we see visibly shown in Christ himself. Eternal life is not just the prolongation of time. Like, we can't sit down and say, well, you know, in 20 million years, if you make your way to Andromeda, uh, you'll find me sitting on a park bench there, and we can have a chat. Sometimes think of it eternity that way, that it's somehow just a prolongation of time, but it's not that. It's not time at all. The eternity is the very life of God. 
We find here about eternal life. We first find here about it, rather, in Daniel chapter 12, everlasting life, eternal life, the, the life of those who are raised from the dead, which is the very life of God. In John chapter 1, John puts it like this, the Word was with God. The Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This gives us a, an insight into those essential relationships of the divine persons. And we learn that the idea of the Father lies in the deity itself, finds its fulfillment in deity. Let me quote from Bede again. The life of which John is speaking here was the same as that which we read in the Gospels when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It was manifested and declared in the flesh by divine miracles. And the disciples who were present saw and later testified to them with undoubted authority. They were there when they saw the greatest demonstration of life imaginable. This dead, broken body that they'd had buried is standing in front of them alive. And like the Apostle Thomas, when confronted by the risen, living Lord, he touched the man, the wounds inside and hands. He touched the man, but he confessed the God, my Lord and my God. The whole idea of having fellowship with God the Father and the Son finds its foundation in terms of the thought of it, as, West, as Westcott points out, in John chapter 17. Let me read that to you. I pray for those who believe in me through their, the apostles' word, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. This forms a background to John's words. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. The two withs are coordinated here. And this kind of coordination implies sameness. To say that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, our fellowship is one and the same, in one and the same. And yet, the fellowship with the Father is not said to be established through the Son. The fellowship with the Father is involved. If you have fellowship with the Father, you have fellowship with the Son. If you have fellowship with Jesus, you have fellowship with God. And this is that from which all things proceed, from that great source, in which all things rest in holiness. So... We've come into fellowship with God. What do we get in fellowship with God? We get all the prizes. And the ones that are mentioned here, this is eternal life. That they should know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This was the great thing that, that John and Paul and others wanted to declare to you, wanted you to hear. They wanted you to hear it very much. The apostles were anxious to share what they had and what they knew. So Paul writes to the Romans, I'm ready to preach the gospel in Rome also. He writes to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains me. 
Woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel. So here's the question. Are we anxious that people, our friends, our colleagues, family members, share what we have, experience what we have? Do we want them to be like us in every way except for our faults and failings, but in every way trusting in Christ and having the hope of glory? Do we have compassion for those who are without Christ? You know, we live at a time when people think themselves far superior to these former generations. Surely today we know better than these old people of the past. Well, you know, they could teach us a thing or two. And this feeling that the past and the people of the past have nothing to give to us or teach us today has a name. It's called chronological snobbery. And yet what we find when we look at these people of the past is we look at the letters of John and the experiences of John as we read those who would follow John, the early fathers, the medievals, the reformers, what we find is that their Christian experience is the same as ours. It has the same bumps along the way, but also the same grace and the same graces. And in some cases, their knowledge is superior to ours. We have eternal life. We have fellowship with this wonderful church, the great church. And the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And best of all, you shall see God. You shall see and you shall know and you shall love. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, we might embrace this beautiful picture in your word, that we have fellowship with the apostles who've given us the Holy Scripture. We have fellowship with your church in heaven, your church throughout the world, those who everywhere call upon the name of the Lord. the church throughout the generations of past and future children of God. And we have fellowship above all with you, Father, and with you, sweet Lord Jesus, by you, dear Holy Spirit. We cast ourselves in you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.